We are in a series in the book of First Peter, entitled Hardships, Holiness, and Hope. The Apostle Peter, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, wrote this letter. He penned it nearly 2,000 years ago, and it is as relevant today as it was to its original audience. You see, Peter is writing to a church around 60 AD that was marginalized and ostracized because of their Christian beliefs and their Christian conduct, their practices. They were discouraged. They were growing weary by the trials and hardships they had to endure. And so Peter writes to them to encourage them, keep pursuing Jesus, keep growing in holiness, don't give up hope. And he says, okay, how can I remind you to not give up in the midst of trials? How can I encourage you and strengthen you to keep growing in holiness as you pursue Jesus, even as the culture around you uh, looks at you as more and more uh, crazy or strange or awkward? And he says, here's how I can remind you. I want to remind you of the common hope and power that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just your individual hope, but your common hope that binds you together and the common power you have that will encourage you and strengthen you to keep following Jesus no matter the cost. And so hardships, holiness, and hope, 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 hope is what will sustain them. Hope is what will sustain us through the dark times, the hard times. Today's message is God's great building project the church. Have you ever built anything? Ever built anything? I think most of us have. Maybe you don't remember it because it's been a long time, but even as a, as a child, even from an early age, I believe we're wired to build, right? Kids build with blocks. It's one of the very first things they do. And then they kind of graduate into building more advanced things. They might, they might build a fort with blankets or they might start building with Legos. Good grief, you step on one of those things, it's like a dagger. That, that's beside the point. As adults, we like to build too. We, we build things, we design things, we build fire pits or you might build models or, or build furniture or might, you might design and rebuild a kitchen or a bathroom. A couple years ago, I realized that uh, the house that we currently live in for the next five days uh, before we move, uh, that we, we needed more storage space in our home. And I decided I was going to buy a shed. You know, one of those plastic ones that come with easy directions and you clip them all into place and there you go. But a couple church members convinced me to not buy a shed, but to build a shed from scratch. Now here's the thing, I'm a hard, I think I'm a hard worker. I worked as a painter when I was going through college, but I'm not really a builder. But they encouraged me. They said, look, we can do this together. And so starting in the middle of December, we began building a shed. And to be honest, it was harder than I ever anticipated. We got the wood ready, to, and I was thinking, man, I'm going to start building some walls. Right? Give me those two-by-fours and put them together. And I was told, no, 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 no. The first couple of days, we're actually going to spend working just on the foundation. And so there we did. We started working on the foundation. We spent hours measuring it, laying it out. Uh, church members telling me, okay, here's what you got to think about. Here's what you have to realize. Here's what you have to measure and keep in mind and make sure it was level because I learned that if the foundation was not laid properly, everything else would be off. And so for the next few weeks, 
more than a few weeks, we built a shed. And I wanted to quit many times. I remember being on the roof, and it was snowing in the middle of January, and I was on top of the roof by myself, nailing in shingles, thinking, what am I doing? Why did we decide to do this project? Who was the, the genius that decided it was a good idea to build a shed in the middle of winter? But in the end, you know what? With a lot of help, with teamwork, we built the shed. And I don't care if it's not the nicest shed out there, but that's the shed we built. I had a hand in it. Others helped me do it together. And we, you don't have to clap. I mean, thank you. But <laughs> to me, this is a work of art. I got to see the project through from beginning to end. And we got to use this shed for a few years for the very purpose why it was built, to store things. Here's the point of our text this morning. God is at work building something. It's much more glorious than a shed or even a house. It's a spiritual building. It's us, the church. We are stones, he says, living stones. And because the builder himself, God, is glorious, then the building he is constructing is also glorious. Look with me at the text, lesson one. Starting in verse four, this lesson, the first lesson is God is building us into a glorious spiritual house. First Peter 2, verse 4 says, As you come to him, who's him? He just said, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And later he's going to talk about Jesus Christ being this living stone. He's talking about Jesus. As you come to Jesus, and by the way, when it says you, anywhere in this text here, it's corporate, it's, it's plural. It's not just as you individually come to Jesus. It's If I was in the South, it's if y'all come to Jesus. As y'all come to Jesus, that's what he's saying. So, did I get an accent there? That was weird. It's plural, okay? As you all come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by man, but in God's sight chosen and precious. Peter calls Jesus a living stone. And then he quotes three Old Testament passages here that show, that talk about being a stone. And, he, and Peter says, these stone metaphors, these stone prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. What is Peter doing here? By calling Jesus a living stone, he's actually contrasting him with the Old Testament temple made of dead stones, if you will, or unalive stones. Peter's point, and by the way, using the word house, we're a spiritual house, the imagery is of a temple. Peter is saying, listen, the church is the new temple that God is building. He's not building a physical temple, he's building a spiritual one, and that's us. That's why he uses Old Testament imagery about the temple throughout this passage. Why? Because the temple was the place where God would meet with his people. Right? You, they didn't just go to their closet or open up the Bible in their, in their bedroom. No. How do you meet with the living God? You go to where he resides, where he dwells, in the temple. At the temple, there would be priests who would represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And it was at the temple that the Israelites would bring their sacrifices, their offerings, to receive atonement or forgiveness of sin. 
Listen, the temple was everything to the Jews, to the Israelites. It was their most sacred space. It was the place where God's glory dwelled. And yet Peter has the audacity to say that these Christians whom he's writing to and to us today, that the great realities about the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, that that is all made true for us in Christ. God's ultimate plan for the world is for, us to, is for His the glory to dwell not in a physical temple made of stones, but in a spiritual temple made of living stones, His people. The church is God's spiritual house that he is building. And again, when I say church, I I just got to make this clear. I don't mean this structure. More than ever, I'm thankful we have a building. I'm thankful we can worship in a building. But this building is not the church. This building is not where God's presence dwells. It is among us, His people. The church is the people of God. We say this to you regularly because we don't want you to forget it. That's why we also tell you, apart from the gathered body of believers, apart from the gathered stones, there is no such thing as a church because the very definition of church is a people called out by God who gather in His name. And so we emphasize over and over the church is the gathered people of God. We are living stones being built on one on top of the other into a, into a spiritual house. And the foundational stone, Peter says, is Jesus Christ. Notice he's talking about a building with intentionality. He doesn't say these living stones are in a pile scattered somewhere. He doesn't say they're, they're scattered throughout a field that we've got to kind of pick up. He doesn't say they're haphazardly thrown together. Voila! A building. And he also doesn't say, you individually stones, you can create your own individual dwellings. No. He says we are being built up together. Meaning, each of us is put in the exact place in this spiritual house by God himself for the purpose of being a holy priesthood that offers up acceptable sacrifices to God with our very lips and our lives. Remember, the primary attribute, if you think with me back to the Old Testament, what is the primary attribute of the temple? How did did God and the people characterize the temple? It was holy, right? Holiness. God's holiness marked the temple. And that's what Peter's calling us to here. He just got done in chapter 1 saying, be holy for God is holy. And he explained what his holiness looked like. He says, be who you are, meaning be the people who are set apart by God, for God. And just as God's presence sanctified the temple and made it holy, declared it set apart, so God's Holy Spirit sanctifies Christian communities like us, setting us apart for his purpose. That's why he calls it a spiritual house. It literally says, a house of the Spirit. God is the builder. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation. The Spirit is what, the glue that holds us all together. And we are the building. This imagery speaks to the unity and significance of the local church. Each stone. Listen, when you think of a building, even just look at our building and these stones here, these bricks. Each one needs the one below it 
and above it in order to function properly, does it not? It needs to be in its proper place and to do its proper function. Even though if I were to say, look at that one stone right there, you would be like, that stone means nothing to me. I have never thought about that brick. Can you see which one I'm talking about? That one right there. That brick, you have never thought about in your life. Ever. Right? Who cares about that one brick? But you know what? That one brick, or that one brick, or that one brick isn't in its place. No building. In other words, we need each other. We depend on each other. We literally bear our weight on each other. We're dependent on living out the fruit of the Spirit and using the gifts of the Spirit to build the body up, that God may build His building up, His spiritual house up. We cannot be the building apart from community, apart from each other. Listen, the church is God's plan A for the world. And in case you were wondering, there's no plan B. If you ever wonder, what if the church doesn't make it? What if, the, what if something happens around the world that, man, the church gets decimated? Man, that, that's what Peter's talking. He's talking to the very people who are wondering that. And 2,000 years later, guess what? It has endured. And for however many years before Jesus returns and takes his church back home, he will, the church will still endure. So as we together keep coming to Jesus, tasting that he is good, hungering for his word, especially in the gospel, God will continue to build his spiritual house up, a place where God can most fully dwell, a light for the nations. This is meant to be a place, when God's people gather, this is meant to be a place where his glory is on display. Did you know that? In this passage, Peter quotes and alludes to Exodus 19, where God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery to Egypt, and he sets them free, and he brings them to the Mount of Sinai. And there is God, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you as my people. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my chosen people, my treasured possession, a holy nation. He was calling them to himself out of his own grace and power, and they were to be set apart that day and from that day forward. And they affirmed that covenant, not just with God, but with each other. There were covenant vows that they made. By the way, that's what we do when we, get, when we take membership into this body. We, we, we say vows. We make a commitment. We, make, we sign a covenant of membership because we know we're making a covenant before God and with each other. And you know what happened after they made that covenant at Mount Sinai? You know what happened? God's glory comes down. His glory comes down. His glory is... is is God's beauty and it's his holiness and it's his power and it's his infinite greatness all wrapped up in one. And Peter is saying to us as the church, the same glory that came down to dwell among his people is the glory that now dwells among the people of God, his building, the church. Listen, God's glory is on display to the church today in ways that it cannot be on display anywhere else. You say, but the church is messed up. The church is flawed. The church has all kinds of issues. Yeah, you're right. But I didn't choose the church to be God's plan A. God did. And he will ensure that his glory comes down, that his, his sanctifying work, his, his redeeming work, his sustaining work will happen among his people in ways that can't happen anywhere else. Praise God for that. That's good news. 
You don't have to go to a big rally. You can, but you don't have to. You don't have to watch a, the greatest preacher online. You can be a part of a local body of believers and his glory will do things in that body that will not be done anywhere else. Are you as committed to the church as God is? This is plan A. He's building a building and he doesn't have any other building plans. He, 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 hasn't, he didn't even scrap the other plans. He never made other blueprints. Just got one set. He's committed to it. Are you as committed? To, in other words, do you love the church as much as God does? Lesson two. Our foundation is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing rejection and isolation from the surrounding culture. Their faith in Christ, literally their beliefs, and their walk with Christ, how they lived among the people, led them to be marginalized and ostracized and even persecuted. I'm telling you, and I don't have time this morning, but listen, I, even just their sexual ethic, because this, this is relevant today. They were, if you looked at the sexual revolution that happened first century Rome, Roman Empire, good grief, it would be just like today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And Christians said, no, we're going to live a certain way. We believe God has taught us to live a certain way. And they were thought as crazy for holding to a sexual ethic as they did. And Peter's point in verses 6 to 8 is this. He's saying, listen, your misfortunes, your trials, they're not a sign of God's rejection of you, but in fact the opposite. Their rejection was was rooted in the world's rejection of Jesus, the cornerstone. He's, a, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men. The stone, verse 7, the builders rejected. And he's saying, your rejection, Christian, Christians, is actually a confirmation that you are of your election as living stones in God's building. And so the hope that Peter offers us as Christians is that in the midst of trials and hardships, those who put their faith in Christ, he says, and quotes the Old Testament, shall never be put to shame. Peter calls Jesus a cornerstone. He quotes Isaiah 28. He quotes Psalm 118, which we read earlier. A cornerstone is the most important stone in a structure. It's the, it, it could be considered the foundational stone for some structures, or it could be considered the capstone. That's another word for cornerstone, the capstone, kind of like an arch. If you were to build an arch of stones, you build the arch, do, 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 and the one in the middle, the one at the very top, is the capstone. You put it in, and it holds all the others together. Apart from the cornerstone, there is no building. Just like that shed we built. Apart from the foundation that we built first, there is no shed. The cornerstone literally holds all the other stones together. And it makes sure all the other stones have stability and strength. Without a cornerstone, the, the, the structure would be shaky and unstable. I think it bears asking this morning, is Jesus Christ your cornerstone? In other words, is he your foundation? You see, your cornerstone is whatever you build your life upon. 
It's what you turn to when life gets difficult, when life starts to crumble in a certain area. It's that thing that gives you joy and happiness and hope. It's that thing when you're daydreaming and you've got nothing else to think about, whatever your mind turns to, that is likely your cornerstone. What do you dream about? What are you longing for most? For some of us, it's our money. And if that starts to, if, if some part of our life starts to fall apart, if we turn over and say, well, at least I got my nest egg, at least I'm doing okay in my finances, then, that, then your money might be your cornerstone. If, if something starts to crumble or starts to kind of give in your, in your life and you say, well, at least I have a strong family, at least I still got my health, that thing might be your cornerstone. The problem, and those things aren't bad things, right? Those are really good things. But listen, no matter what you look to as your cornerstone, if it's not Jesus, it will always fail you. Every other cornerstone, sadly, will let us down. Well, gladly, will let us down. Eventually, anything you build your life upon that's not Jesus will crumble. It will begin to fall. It will get shaky. It can't last. It can't endure. Why? You say, why is that not true? Why can't this thing be my cornerstone? It's so precious to me. It's so important. When I have it, I feel happy. You know why? Because that thing was never meant to handle all the pressure of your very life, your soul, your identity. If, if you think this thing can handle your identity, you're going to be sorely mistaken when it falls out from under you. Why do you think a lot of the issues are happening today because we tend to build our lives with something other than Jesus. Only Jesus has the ability to hold everything else in your life together. Only he can give you the stability even when you fail or when life fails you. Verse 7, he says, Peter says something really interesting. This is his own words now. After he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, Peter says, the honor is for you who believe. The honor, Christian. Peter's saying those who trust in Christ are honored. You might experience shame right now for your beliefs, for your conduct, how you live. You might be rejected at some point or marginalized for taking a stand on issues. Some of you are thinking, does that even happen? Listen, I talk to church members all the time. I could bring them up one by one and tell you things at work or in their families or in their circle of friends when they, when they even just kindly said, oh no, this is kind of how I live. They were looked at and thought that you're a fool. We have a guy who's at high up in the government in an agency and he's been ridiculed because he's a Christian all because he has just simply said things about how he lives. And people are like, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. And he's like, what, what did I do to you? You might be treated unfairly, but Peter is saying, don't lose hope. Don't give in to despair because in the grand scheme of things, you experience honor now by being God's beloved children and you're going to experience honor and glory in the future that you can't even imagine. Your shame on earth might last for a moment, but your honor from Christ will stretch on for eternity. Real quick, let me just say, I... Have you ever attended a, a funeral for someone who has served their nation honorably? Have you ever been to a funeral where they do military honors? It's a, if you've never been to one, you've got to experience it at least one time in your life. I was at one recently from one of our dear church members. And I always, whenever I'm at one of those services, I'm always struck by, by all the things that are willing to be done to show honor to someone who has served their nation well. 
The last one I was at, there was, there was men and women carrying the casket and they draped a flag across it and then they slowly fold it up and then they kneel b- before the person, the family, and, and p- pay respect and they salute the flag and then they, there was musicians there and they played taps and this, this one had the five-gun salute and there was a horse-drawn carriage and then someone was playing the bagpipes. I mean, I'm in tears at every one of these because I'm thinking, wow, I don't know how to show honor the way these men and women know how to show honor. And then a part of me, honestly, if I'm being honest, I I sometimes wish, man, I wish I could be honored one day like that. I won't in that way. But listen, Christian, a day is coming where your honor will far outweigh anything that here on earth can offer you. That's a beautiful ceremony and service but it is nothing compared to the honor we will receive when we stand before Jesus, redeemed by his blood. He says in verse 8, verse 7, but for those who do not believe, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. In other words, some people will stumble on the rock of Jesus. Some might experience honor in this life, but they will ultimately experience judgment and condemnation because they have rejected Jesus. What is he he telling us? He's telling the Christians there and us, God is not surprised that some will reject the gospel of Jesus. He knows, God knows, Peter knows, we know that the message of the gospel is offensive to some. God forbid that our methods would be offensive, but may we never be ashamed of declaring the gospel as it truly is, knowing that it will offend some. It is. It has to be offensive to tell people, every single human in the world, from the greatest humanitarian to the lowest person in society, to tell everyone, you are more wicked than you ever imagined, and you deserve eternity in hell's punishment. That is offensive, and maybe to you it was offensive one time in your life. But to know that not, that's not the only thing that the gospel tells us. It also tells us that if you come to Christ, when you trust Christ, in Christ you could be more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. God knows that people will stumble on Jesus. Jesus will be a stone of stumbling. If some of you are wondering, no, we got to do our best to, 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 to try to remove obstacles, remove any stumbling, that's impossible. Jesus is a stone, a literal stone, if you will. And literally, he becomes the wall that protects you from, from, from Satan and from sin, or he becomes a thing that you stumble over. It's one of the two. It's who he is. It's the nature of who he is as our redeemer. C.S. Lewis said it correctly. At the end of the day, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He's not just a good guy. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just someone who we should follow his teachings. No, he's either the Lord and King of the universe, or he's the craziest human ever who ever lived. And, and why are we even here? Peter's point here is, don't be surprised by all this. God's not surprised God appointed Jesus as the living stone who becomes both honor for believers and judgment for unbelievers. But his point here is, it's not too late. If you are listening right now at home, if, you're, if you have this on your phone or your tablet, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, can you listen just for a moment? I plead with you today, don't let Christ be a stone of stumbling for you. 
Let him be a stone of rescue and redemption. You see, the only reason we can receive honor now and in the future is because Jesus took our shame on the cross. He took our guilt. He died before everyone, naked, stripped down, beaten, and he's put on a cross, which is a cursed symbol for the Jews. Why? So that he could take all aspects of our shame and guilt, so that we could take all aspects of his honor and glory and and, and righteousness when he was raised from the dead to newness of life. Trust in the work of Jesus. Rest your soul on the rock of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Only he can offer forgiveness. Only he can reunite you to your creator and to your redeemer. Either you build your life on Jesus or the kingship of Jesus will ultimately crush you. But Peter is saying, come now, you have a choice. Come, invite him in. Finally, lesson three, Peter teaches us to live out our new identity and purpose in Christ. Notice the language of verses five and nine. You yourselves are being built up to be a, a holy priesthood. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why this kind of language? It sounds so flowery. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting what God said to the people of Israel. And why, why is Peter applying it now to the church? He's saying, listen, instead of simply identifying yourselves as some group of social and religious outcasts, which they were, Peter's calling them to remember and to live out their new identity, which comes to their relationship to Jesus, the cornerstone. Because it's only when we understand who we are that we can face a world that is constantly trying to redefine who we are. You hear what I'm saying? It's only when we understand who we are that we can endure hardships and pursue holiness without losing heart. The world is constantly trying to redefine us. Our sinful hearts are constantly finding ways to come up with things that we want to worship and be like. And, Jesus, and Peter is saying, no, 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 no. Remember who you are. It's when you remember who you are that you can guard against anything that's trying to remake you in its own image. Peter says, remember, you weren't always these things. You once were not a people. But now you are God's people. There was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are. Christians, do you believe this? Let me tease this out a little bit. You are a chosen race, a chosen people. Notice Peter doesn't say Christians are a choice people. Choice would be something special about them. This is a choice bunch of people. I picked them out. No. There's nothing good in us that God calls God to, 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 to choose us. No, it was something good in God that caused him to choose us. And that goodness is called his grace. We are chosen people, not a choice people. We are chosen by sheer grace alone. You and I don't measure up. We never have. We never will. But we're his. He's adopted us. He's made us his own. Not only that, we're a royal priesthood. In ancient times, every culture had some sense of the divine, 
right? Their own god or most likely the gods. And nearly every culture had a sense of this gap between the divine and the human. A gap between human being, the gods and human beings. And so they, every culture created a group of spiritual elites to mediate that gap. They're called the priests. That's why virtually every religion in ancient history and many religions today still have temples and priests and sacrifices. Temples where people go to meet with their god or gods, priests to mediate between human and divine, and sacrifices are made to the gods, either to get what they want or because the gods demand those sacrifices or whatever the case may be. Ancient Israel had a form of this, right? And then Jesus comes along and he says, my body is the temple. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll, I'll build it back up. I'll raise it back up. People are like, what are you talking about? You can, if we destroy that temple, you, and he's like, no, 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 John tells us in John 2, he's referring to his own body. Hebrews, that he is the great high priest who goes in, and then he himself is the ultimate sacrifice. And so now Christians don't have a physical temple, they don't have a special class of priests, and we don't offer physical sacrifices of animal or anything else, No. And that's why Christianity, when it came on the scene, was so radically different than any other religion. Did you know that the Roman Empire, that the Roman people at the very beginning called Christians atheists? You know why? Because every other religion had temples and priests and sacrifices. But Christians went around saying, we don't need any of those things. Jesus is the temple. He's the high priest. He's the, he's the sacrifice. Oh, and by the way, he lives in us. And so our bodies are the temple. We are priests and we offer spiritual sacrifices unto God. They were like, that makes no sense. Atheist. It was so radically different than anything else that had come onto the world. You are a royal priesthood. Do you see how this elevates your sense of identity? You can meet with God directly. You don't need me to do it. You don't need, I'm not a priest, but you don't need a priest to do it. You don't need anybody else to do it. You just need Jesus to do it, and he's already done it. And he brings you in and says, I'm not just a great high priest. You are also sons and daughters of the king, because you're a royal priesthood. As if you couldn't imagine, how can you come into the throne room of God Every day, every moment, whenever you need to, whenever you desire to, it's because you are his son and daughter and only royal children have access to the king 24-7. And then Peter says, you know, I want to show you how, just how loved you are. Because you are a people for his own possession. This is a beautiful phrase. In the, it's hard to, to, to translate it from the Greek. It means... You are God's most treasured possession. You are his greatest treasure. You are, you are who he thinks most about. You are who he delights in the most. If you consider the enormity of our universe just for a moment, think about all that God has created. Think about galaxies. That, some that we've, we've found and some we don't even know of yet. We have scientists who, in our church who, who, who study these things and they, they're still blown away. Think of all the sun, stars, moon, all the things that are out there. Think of our own planet and the oceans that are teeming with life. Think about planet Earth. Have you watched those videos and you're just like, what? I, did, I had no idea those animals do that or that they even existed. I didn't know we could go that far in the ocean. I didn't know we could go way up in the mountains. I didn't know those things existed. Wow, it's beautiful. 
It's spectacular. It's breathtaking, isn't it? We live in an amazing planet. And yet God is saying to His people, to us, take a look around, study, explore it, and then consider you are worth much more than all of that combined. What? Are you kidding me? All of it combined, Jesus, God says, all of it combined doesn't even, doesn't even carry any weight compared to you, how much I value you and love you, my people. You're the apple of my eye. You're, the, you're, you're, the most, you're my prize. You're my special children. This is our new identity in Christ. Many of us are plagued by the question day after day, am I enough? Am I strong enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I successful enough? It starts at a young age as children, and then they become teenagers, and it really kind of blows up, and then they become adults, and then we're just better at masking it. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and to others that we're enough. And we live in a world of advertisement and social media that just drives home the message, you're not enough. Apart from this mixer, your life is meaningless. You got to buy it. Apart from this dress or suit, you got, you, you're not, in social media, fake pictures of pay, fake scenarios so they can show you how amazing their lives are. And, you're, and you look at that and you're like, my life is a wreck. If I take a picture of how I am now, everybody's going to laugh at me. I can't do it. Their lives are amazing. My life stinks. And Peter's saying, stop trying to prove that you are enough and start believing that you are valued beyond belief. That Jesus purchased us with his own blood to show us that in spite of our flaws and our fears, we are loved. Why do we have this new identity? What is our purpose? The end of verse 9. That, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the purpose of a shed? To store stuff. What's the purpose of the church? To declare the excellencies of God. To proclaim, the, it means to proclaim the character of God. His beauty, His power, His grace, His salvation. Christian, that is your calling in life. I don't care how old you are or young you are. I don't care what cultural background you have. I don't care what flaws or sufferings that you've been through. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care if you're single or married or single again. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Your purpose is to proclaim the immeasurable worth of the God who rescued you out of death and brought you into his glorious light. His marvelous light. That word literally means wonderful light. His light of wonder. Are you doing that? That's, what I'm, that's where I end today. Are you doing that? Next week, Pastor Brady's going to talk about the next passage where, he ta- where, he, where Peter says, how do we live for God? It's in our actions, good deeds. But he starts by saying, it's in your words, how you speak. Why do you think we sing every week? Why do you think, no matter what the government says, whether we should or shouldn't sing, we're going to sing and we're going to do it as safely as we can because we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we sing about that every week to remind our souls who we are and whose we are. 
And as we do all of this, God will continue to build his glorious spiritual house. He'll add more stones. In other words, more people who recognize and worship our great God and Savior Jesus, the cornerstone. Let's be who we are called to be, this beautiful, glorious church that God is building. Let me pray. Father, this is your word, and we are your people. And we have come to declare that you alone are worthy of our worship, our allegiance, our faith, our love, and our hope. Because you alone are our cornerstone, Lord. Jesus, no one else can take that role in our lives and to do it successfully. And so we come to you this morning, every follower of Christ, every believer, we come in the name of Jesus, staking our claim on the foundation of Jesus because we need hope this morning, Lord. We need hope in a world that we feel often battered and, and is broken and there's injustice and there's pain and our personal lives sometimes feel out of control. God, remind us we have a foundation that cannot be moved. Remind us that we are needed in this church you are building. Every one of us, no matter our flaws or backgrounds, we are needed. And God, today I pray for someone who may be wrestling. Maybe they've heard of Jesus. Maybe they, they know in their mind the, the message of the Bible, but they've never said, I want to be a child of God. I want to be a Christian. God, wherever they are, here or somewhere around this country or globe, and they're watching, I pray that they would turn to you in faith. As Peter says, as we come to him, Lord, may they come to you now in simplicity of faith and say, Lord Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I, I was, I, I'm not a people, but now in Christ, through faith in Christ, I can be your child. Please have mercy on me. Give me new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus and help me live for you. God, I pray that someone's life would be eternally changed right now, that the glory of God, even though we can't see it, it's not a, a pillar of fire, but right now, it's something more glorious might happen, that you would be sanctifying your church, that you would be saving individuals, and may we, may we accept and believe that that glory is far more glorious, that that glory is powerful, that you are at work right here and right now, doing something special that we cannot do in our own power and we cannot conjure it up. We lay it before you. God, work in our hearts. Build your church. We pray, I beg you, in the name of Jesus, amen.